Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. Let's, let's imagine as we start our series that the COVID restrictions are off. Everybody would be going, yeah, right? And we decide to take our first big trip. We're going to Rome, and our first stop is the Sistine Chapel uh, where Michelangelo's uh, mural is. And you begin to look all around. You tilt your head all back, and you take the, in the enormity of the mural, and you, you recognize many of the 300-plus characters from Adam and Eve and Noah and Jacob and David, and you see the creation scenes, one of which is the most familiar one. We think of the strong arm of God reaching out to touch the hand of Adam. We all know that picture, right? And there's the 12 prophets who foretold the birth of Messiah Jesus, and you have all the ancestors of Jesus. Through these scenes, Michelangelo shows us humanity's need for salvation that is offered in God through Jesus, seeing the great lengths through his beautiful art that God has gone to rescue the lost and hurting people of this world. The power of a mural is that you can see the individual stories, and yet you also can see that the stories are all connected, telling this one grand epic story. God's story is one big story through many, many people's lives. Our purpose this year in this year-long series that we've called One Big Story going cover to cover in the Bible was for us to see the big picture, to be immersed in God's divine design, to see that each one of us plays a role in his story. That if we want to live life to the full, then we become part of his masterpiece as he weaves our individual stories into his one big story. Today we're actually finishing our series, The One Big Story. In the midst of all the uncertainty and ambiguity we're walking through, I have so valued this walk through the Bible together, seeing how God is always in control, bringing his purpose to happen. I mean, he's got this. He's got us. We see that no more clearly in the final book of the Bible. It's called Revelation. It may seem like we're going to quickly jump from Acts where we were last week to Revelation, but we've spent the last two weeks on Paul, and Paul wrote nearly half of the New Testament. So this is kind of a big jump. But for today, let's look at how the New Testament ends. When you think of the book of Revelation, what do you think of? For most of us, the immediate thing is we start thinking about end times, right? The book of Revelation is actually not an easy read. It has all these talk of raptures, the bulls of judgment, the beasts, the false prophets, the gigantic woman who is called the mother of all prostitutes, the four horsemen, poison locusts, human-eating dragons, and the number 666. So many confusing metaphors and symbols and visions. And But don't worry. I went to seminary. I earned a master degree in divinity, so I mastered the divine that degree title is like the most presumptuous bad title ever made for a degree. So, but, you know, now I know how to explain the book of Revelation. No, I don't, I'm not going to be able to tell you everything at all. Nobody can do that. All of the symbolism can make this book intimidating. And many interpret these symbols differently. Our purpose today is not about how these various views are, are, are should be looked at. Our focus is to look at the focus of Revelation, which is to help us see more clearly the second coming of Jesus. 
And we need to care about the second coming of Jesus. Why? If, if for nothing else, because the Bible talks about the first coming of Jesus about 129 times by one person's count. But it talks about the second coming of Jesus 329 times, two and a half times as much. So let's jump in. Revelation means the unveiling. But what's being unveiled? It's a revelation unveiling of who Jesus is to the church and the world. It is also a revelation from Jesus about the things that will take place. The point of Revelation is to not give us a specific timeline of all these events of the end times. The purpose is to help you see the world with spiritual eyes, to help believers live in the present day in light of history's final outcome. So let's just jump back a little bit. The book of Revelation is written by John, a disciple of Jesus, around 100 A.D. John, by this time, is a very, very old man living on an island for prisoners where he has this revelation or vision from God. At that time, the Holy Spirit inspired the writing. The church was not doing well. The disciples had all been martyred except for John. Christians were dying and being hunted down and fed to lions, were being falsely blamed for the burning of Rome and all sorts of things. And yet Christianity, in spite of that, is all still growing, even though it seems like evil is winning. And Jesus appears to John and gives him a revelation. In this very first chapter, we see Jesus unveiled. In Revelation 1, it says, I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice with a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades, or hell. This was the same John who experiencing this who described himself earlier as the one that Jesus loved. It's kind of like saying I'm the favorite. At the Last Supper, John, we see, uh, describes himself as reclining with his head on, the, uh, on Jesus' chest at the table. Now, I have some really close guy friends, but I'm not going to lay with my head on their chest at dinner. That's just, that's just not me. But John sees Jesus in, his, in this revelation 60 years later. His response is much different. John falls at Jesus' feet like he was dead. John literally thought he was going to die, which is a very different response. Jesus always had this kind of power, but he veiled it differently on earth. To the church who was going through much, much persecution of that time, the re this revelation helped expand their view of Jesus. To see Jesus' power unveiled in all of its strength to see and hear Jesus as John records it. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I was there. In other words, Jesus is saying, I was there when it all started. I'll be the last one standing in the end. In the meantime, I'm guiding everything to my appointed end. And behold, I am alive forevermore, he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades or hell. I died for you, he's saying, so your death is not final. I have the keys to it and am with you through it. I have the keys to all that could ever threaten you. So what are you afraid of, he's saying? Do you think I can't conquer cancer, he's saying to us? Do you think I'm not aware of that you need a job or that you're worried about your relationship with whoever it is, and yet, yet who is with you? Jesus is saying to us in this revelation, look at me. I am here and I am power and love. This is true for John and for all of the persecuted in the church. It's true today. No matter what you face, this remains true. If you're in a good season or in a dark season of life, Jesus is the first and last. He defeats death. He wins. In the midst of the unveiling of Jesus, we also see the unveiling of the world. Revelation, I honestly, paints a terrifying picture of, of, of judgment, doesn't it? Even though this is really critical, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point. In this series, we've talked about how love requires that there also be judgment. If we believe God is loving, He will also judge. Why? Because love demands justice. When you love someone and they're harmed, let's say your kid is assaulted, your love for your child would want to pursue justice. You don't just say, that's okay, those things happen. No, love values and pursues justice, and judgment is part of justice. Revelation gives us powerful, terrifying images of judgment to help us understand that we are not to be flippant about sin. There are consequences to sin. All sin, every way we have stood against God and His ways will be unveiled unless we've received God's forgiveness and given our lives to Him as the master of our lives. One image of our world unveiled is uh, in Revelation 17 and 18. We see the strange picture of a woman sitting on a beast covered with blasphemous, blasphemous names. She had seven heads and ten horns. She represents the enemies of God, all those who don't follow Jesus. Revelation clearly identifies that there are two kingdoms in this world. There's her kingdom, the enemy's kingdom, and Jesus' kingdom. She hates Jesus. It talks about her being drunk with the blood of God's people because she has hated Jesus and his people always. But then in chapter 18, she, the enemy, loses. One kingdom is left standing, and it will be Jesus' kingdom. Judgment of evil is a critical point in Revelation but not as critical as continuing to see even more clearly how Jesus is unveiled to us. Let's look at one of the final scenes in Revelation 21. It may sound a little familiar because when you read this story, we find ourselves right back where we started in this series. Genesis 1 and 2 is remarkably similar to Revelation 21 and 22. God is bringing us full circle in order for God to have the kind of relationship He desires with humanity. So Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It is done. That is a promise. Many people have a fear that heaven could be boring. Life is just going to be singing in a choir for eternity. But if we look at the vision John concludes with in Revelation, it can shape our lives like nothing else can. John describes a new heaven and a new earth. There are two words for new in the Greek. One is neos, which means brand new, and another one is kainos, which means remade. Kainos, remade, is the word used here. Heaven is not some new, colorless, ethereal realm completely unlike where we are. It is a renewed, remade heaven and earth. For example, I mean, if a car dealer wants to sell an old classic car that's been restored, you'd expect that car to be updated or a souped-up version of the car, not something completely different. The new heaven and earth, new earth will be everything we loved about this old heaven and old earth that we live in now, minus the curse of sin. Everything in creation will be even more beautiful. Pleasures will be strengthened. Our limitations removed. I mean, can you imagine what a glorified sunrise and sunset will look like? Can you imagine what pumpkin pie and ice cream is going to taste like? What would it be like to have pleasure and love without pain? I mean, the ultimate heaven doesn't exist yet. Jesus says it's coming after God destroys the old earth and heaven in a final judgment. Now, the Bible does talk about God being in heaven now and believers who die going to heaven. Paul says it this way. It says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in 2 Corinthians. So believers who have died have gone to heaven. However, the current heaven seems like it's just a beautiful temporary holding place. Some have called it a layover, a really great layover, until we have a new heaven and a new earth. Allow me to summarize this even further by borrowing from the Bible Project and how it describes heaven and earth as talking about God's space and our space. Now we know about our space, our earthly realm, about trees and mountains and what it looks like and what it's like, but God's space for us is a little less clear. The Bible tells us the two spaces are different but not always separated. In the beginning, the Garden of Eden was a place where God and humanity lived together perfectly and humans partnered with God to build a flourishing, amazing world. But humans wanted to do things differently. We wanted God out of our business and we chose to create a world apart from Him, sin. That's why the Bible talks about earth, which is the present age, the age of sin and death, and heaven, which is the kingdom of God and eternal life. Now, these spaces originally overlapped as one, and then they became separate. 
The problem is sin and the pure goodness of God can't mix. So God had a plan for his presence to be experienced through repentance, which involved humans turning to God and his ways and owning our sin and receiving his forgiveness. So originally this took place through the aid of an animal sacrifice, giving our best to God, worshiping God by seeing this animal, as we laid our hand on it, take the penalty of death in order for justice to be fulfilled on our behalf, even though it was supposed to be us who died. The sacrifice would create a clean space, if you want to call it that, so we could freely enter the temple and be in God's presence. But animal sacrifice on the altar of God wasn't perfect enough or thorough enough, the New Testament teaches. Absolute forgiveness of sins for all required that which is completely good, completely holy, completely perfect, coming into our space of sin and fulfilling justice by bearing the penalty of sin on our behalf. So God came in Jesus. Jesus purposely leaves the clean, safe space and runs to hang out with sinners. He heals and forgives them of their sins. It's like Jesus is bringing the heaven wherever he goes. And he walks through sin and darkness on our space, the earth. And Jesus keeps telling us the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he told all of his followers to pray that his kingdom, his will would be done here on earth as it is is in heaven, breaking into our reality. Now, despite the good news, many were threatened by Jesus, and so we killed him. And he uses this evil to reunite heaven and earth. Remember when John the Baptist said, Behold about Jesus, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice where he absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices where Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this brings us back to the question of heaven and earth. We know that after Christians die, they will be with Jesus. But that's not the focus of the Bible. The focus is now on heaven and earth are being reunited as Jesus comes and will completely bring together this heaven and earth reality once again when Jesus returns. In Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the, of the Garden of Eden in Scripture now in the form of a new earth and the city of God coming in the age of sin and death when it is ended by redeeming all human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. See, Revelation puts it this way in 21 verse 3. And I heard the loud voice from the phone saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, heaven is where God and his people are reunited. One of God's purposes in salvation is to create an eternal family united in love by a love that never fades. We will never have to say goodbye. We will be, we'll be reunited with God. We will enjoy his companionship forever and ever. We will be so filled with love, we won't know how to contain it. Revelation 21.4 says it this way, He will wipe our tears away from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
Twice in Revelation, God says, He will wipe our tears away, double emphasizing this point. Some of you have cried this week. Those tears are precious to God. They're not something you just get over. And honestly, God gets it. He never created, never designed for you to feel the kind of pain and loss and disappointment that comes in our broken world today. So when he says no more tears, it equals no depression, no fear, no worry, no stress, no misunderstandings, no relational conflict, no more pain, equals no more chronic illness, no more ICUs, chemotherapy, pharmacies, children's hospitals, homicide departments, or funeral homes. We will finally experience the world without sin. Or as Tolkien says it, in that moment on that final day, all the sad things on earth will come untrue. We won't be bored. We'll be more fulfilled, more engaged, entertained, more alive than ever before. Just like we shared a few weeks back, one of the main purposes of the church is to learn how to live better lives in the here and now. To not be so heaven-focused that we don't live well here. We are to have thriving relationships and jobs and lives. We are to live in the now. And we are also to keep a clear eye on the future, on eternity, as our hope. Do we teach our kids how much there is to look forward to in life after this life. To enjoy what we have, realizing God has something better that comes after life. Something better than Disney. I realize this message may leave a lot of us with more, more questions than answers. I remember Revelation has a way of doing that. It just kind of leaves us all with more questions than answers. But I love that because it brings out a truth that I think Callistus Ware, a Greek Orthodox theologian, says so profoundly. He says, it is not the task of Christianity to provide these answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. And then I really love this. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Mystery is something beyond the constraints of our logical brain at this time. Mystery is, has more meaning than we can fit into the four dimensions of space and time in which we exist. Mystery is truth we can't totally contain. There are aspects of Revelation that lead us to wonder about the power of God. Like, I don't know how God's going to recycle this earth, but it's going to be better than we could ever imagine. We're going to be able to explore it and enjoy it. And even better, it's not going to be as much about a place as it is about a person. There'll be no separation between us and God, the one who loves us so personally, so thoroughly, so perfectly. It reminds me of Revelation 8. It says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I love this. Now it goes on immediately after that to talk about this incredible scene of peals of thunder and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. But before it, 30 minutes of silence. And scholars have all ideas about what the 30 minutes mean, but I think it's a silent pause because we're going to be so overwhelmed by God's unfiltered love, unfiltered power, unfiltered presence. 
So much so that it's going to take a while for us to even catch our breath to even know what to do. We're going to be so speechless in the presence of God. And isn't it true that the best things in life can't be contained in words? I mean, the Bible talks repeatedly in different ways about this joy unspeakable. There are some things that we can't put into words. There are mysteries we believe about God and heaven that we can't fully understand. We can't even imagine a second dimension of time. How are we going to wrap our minds around eternity? Some physicists toy around with the idea of maybe there being possibly five or six dimensions, but they can't get any further than that without all the rules having to change and be broken. So if we cannot imagine that, how do we imagine this God who exists outside of the space-time dimension that He created? How do we grasp a renewed earth for eternity outside of the constraints we experience now due to the brokenness of sin? That's what I'm trying to help us. Maybe just take a little bit more of a grasp of today. There is more joy than we are capable of putting into words. More truth than we can fit into our current understanding of time and space. This is called heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be amazing. Revelation probably should have actually been titled The New Beginning. Because it's really the beginning of a new adventure. I love Winston Churchill. He kind of understood this at some level. He planned his own funeral in advance with a surprise ending to the service. A bugler stood in one uh, uh, dome of St. Paul's Cathedral in London and played the doleful sound of taps, you know, the universal signal that the day or the life is over. And then in a dramatic moment on the other side of the dome, another bugler played reveille, singling, singling a new day has dawned. It's time to rise and get up. I mean, what a profound reminder that the last note is not death, but life. Revelation shows us all of human history is an opening act to this life called eternity. We see in it a glimpse of a new beginning, the new adventure of eternity. So as we close, would we be... People who, when we sin, we own it so deeply and publicly like David. Not just owning it before God, but owning for other, before other people and asking for forgiveness. Because we trust God's forgiveness that much and His love that much. Will we be people like Daniel who, even though he's put in a, a place of very difficult pagans all around him and he's supposed to lead and he's even supposed to study their religions that he somehow remains faithful and prays every day so that God's presence would be a part of his life and his truth would reign in his life. Would we be like the disciples who decide to declare that Jesus is King and Lord and Master in spite of the persecution that would come, that they would all choose to be willing to declare Him as the Lord even though they're martyred for Him. What's our life going to look like? What's our piece of this mural, this one big story that God is inviting each and every one of us to be a part of? What's that painting going to look like? What are we going to choose? Today I just want you to take some time, maybe as an action point, to discuss maybe over lunch with, with somebody, what do you want your life painting to be? What do you feel like God is calling your life 
to be a part of, as a part of this one big story. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, it's amazing that you would look at us as people so broken by sin and you invite us into your story. But Lord, we receive that today. We're grateful for it. We worship you that you are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end and everything in between, God, that you have the power that even though we love what you look like on earth and we should love that because you represent such grace and such forgiveness and such wisdom and that's what you're calling us to, but that you are also this picture of revelation, this, this God who is mighty, who is perfect in power, who can judge honestly and accurately and mercifully everything there is. Lord, as you invite us, each and every one, to be a part of that story, would you help us respond to you? Again, I want to speak to you if you have not given your life to Jesus, if you've not chosen to be a follower of him, then you can do that simply in your own words by just simply saying, God, I, I know I sin. I don't even live up to my own expectations, much less your expectations. So Lord, I confess that sin to you and I ask for your forgiveness and then just receive his forgiveness. And in your own words, declare in your own way, God, I'm going to give you my entire life, everything about me. And Lord, I want you to take my life and put me in this story. Let my life be something worth an eternal painting as a part of your story. And now as we turn to worship, would you just give your voice to God and just declare how awesome, how amazing, how wonderful he is because he is far beyond anything we can imagine. hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.